A young Lamar County farmer was dead Tuesday, victim of a farm accident, Indians. Glenn Mashburn, 15, of Howland, was mashed to death when a cotton sprayer overturned on him at the family farm. Notice. Clever how you integrated that. Stop. Help <laughs> save the youth of America. Don't buy Negro records. If you don't want to serve Negroes in your place of business, then do not have Negro records on your jukebox or listen to Negro records on the radio. The screaming, idiotic words and savage music of these records are undermining the morales of our white youth in America. The morales of our white youth in America. It took two years to write this book that proves beyond any shadow of doubt. One, the communist use of rhythmic, hypnotic music. Two, the communist use of beat music. Three, the communist use of folk music. And four, the communist use of rock and folk music. Call the advertisers of the radio station that play this type of Negro music and complain to them. Don't let your children buy, listen, copy, or renew their subscriptions to Negro records. This book proves that riots in Berkeley, the insurrection at Watts, were in part inspired by this jungle beat, communist-planned music, and personally directed by generals of this ungodly communist music crowd. Take it! Now back to the firefighting scenes room, Mr. Arpin. Ah, Mr. Annunciation! No, I've been going to the street school now for a thick month. Okay. Look at all that ambient noise. Larry Ambient's leaving. So long, Larry. He's leaving in his ambience. He was an ambience driver in the Spanish Civil War. An ambient, an ambient noise driver? An ambience He's the guy in the background going... Gee, this reminds me a lot of those wonderful days riding an MGM. It does? Very crowded. <laughs> crowded and hot, eating in sure. the commissary. It was like this. 30 or 40,000 of us would gather in our office and Hatch write. over the ideas of all of our multiple identity scenes. Remember when we wrote Hot Bars back in 1956? Yeah, and Leather Bed. Yeah, yeah. One morning, I arrived at the studio and noticed a man sitting outside the office of Bob McIntyre, the casting director. He had his knees up and his arms around them, and he looked at get me your as knees I went up. by. I asked Bob who he was. Oh, just a kid, a writer. He wants to get into the picture. He says he has a test. Send the test over to the projection room, I said. I'll slip out the back door and have a look at it. Meanwhile, bring him in and introduce him. So this fellow came in, and after a long pause, he said, I'd like to play the part of Abe Lee. I'm sorry, I said, that part's taken. I excused myself from him and went over to the projection room and looked at his test. He had paid to have it made on Poverty Row. All he did was ride up on a horse, make a gallant dismount, look at the camera, and walk into a saloon. I came back and said to Bob McIntyre, well, anyway, he can ride a horse. I made a deal with the boy. I'm taking ten riders up to the location, I said. I have nine of them, and I would like you to take you. You get $50 a week, and we keep you in the camp. All right, he said. I'll take it. On the understanding that you have a little part, you'll give it to me. Well... We got ready to start the picture, and this other actor still hadn't shown up. So I took this boy and put him in Abe Lee's costume. All you have to do, I said, is keep your eyes on Vilma Banky. You know, that man stood there from 8 in the morning until 12. No matter where Vilma Banky went, his eyes followed her, whether we were shooting or not. I think he'd done some extra work, but that was all. He'd come down from Montana and was new to motion pictures. I need two seven and three-eighths heads, Larry Stewart said. Two what? Bowers said, two seven and three-eighths heads. 
to play monsters on Lost in Space. The art department has already whipped up the heads, and they happen to be seven and three-eighths. Now we just need the actors to fix them. Are there any young fops in the new talent program? Ross Brown said. I need a young fop for Boone. Well, what's the role, Bowers said. Just that, Brown said, a young fop. The story's about this Indian girl, and she's living with these white folks. They find out she's an Indian, and they don't want her to marry their young fop son. <laughs> Richard Krischer, Kurt Conway said, a perfect fop. A Billy DeWolf type, only younger. Brown looked at his clipboard. He mentioned another young actor in the new talent program. Has he been drafted yet? He asked. I need him to play an Indian. He's got blue eyes, Bowers said. Hazel, Brown said. It can work. Hell yes, Scully said. They were making a Western over at Universal a couple of years ago in color, and when they looked at the dailies, they discovered that the chief had blue eyes. It was too late to replace him, so they put the research department to work, and they found a tribe in North Dakota, or someplace, where every redskin had blue eyes. They wrote in a line of dialogue to cover it, and they were home free. <laughs> Henry, I just want you to understand one thing. When you spend a dollar of my money, you're spending a dollar of your own. Why, what's the matter, Sam? You're going to put that damn cowboy in one of the biggest parts in the picture. How do you know? I just saw yesterday's rushes. How were they? They were good for that. But how are you going to do the big scene? That's a big dramatic scene and no damn cowboy can play it. Well, now, uh, to ease your mind, Sam, we, we finished everything we can. The actor we hired from Warner is still working for Lubitsch, and I don't know if he'll get here by Christmas. It isn't costing us anything to continue with this boy. We have to pay for everything anyway. Just, we're just using up some film. Right. The, the deal. That's what this business is about. Who's available? When can you get him? Start date, stop date, percentages. The deal. That's the only thing that matters. Listen, if Paul Newman comes in and says he wants to play Gertrude Lawrence in Star, you do it. It's the nature of the business. So, all right. I returned to the set and got the people back into the mood. Then I went outside to the actor, wet his face again, and pasted more Fuller's Earth till his eyes were just two cracks. It was the darndest makeup you ever saw in your life because it had been on for more than four hours. We kept wetting his face and applying more Fuller's Earth until the dust caked in his ears, his eyes, and his clothes. Everything was white. When I was ready to shoot, I gave Sindler the sign for this fellow to knock on the door. And you know, he knocked on that door like he could hardly touch it. Ronnie Coleman stood up, opened the door, and revealed the most pathetic case I've ever seen in my life. I don't think anything will remain in my memory as long as the sight of Gary Cooper standing full length in that door, looking across the room and saying, Mr. Worth? and falling flat on his face. As he went down, Ronnie Coleman and Paul McAllister grabbed him, and Cooper's face missed the floor by two inches. Oh. They carried him over to the bed, and I said to George Barnes, a cameraman, and Greg Tolan the second, right over here, quick. If I let this makeup deteriorate, we could never replace it. They were lining up for a close-up when Irving Sindler came up. Mr. Goldwyn wants to see you. Now we need a little motivation. Why does a guy get hot pants to get the chief? Maybe he just wants the excitement. Look, part of the reason I went to the peace market in March in Century City was because I thought it was going to be exciting. Why, sure, it mirrored my views. I think the Vietnam War is crap. But I thought I'd get a little jazz out of the march, too. You were there. Weren't you beaten up? No, I was just ducking blows, Brooks said. Quite frankly, that's how I came up with this idea. Controversy, Monash said. That's right, Brooks said. I know you want controversial subjects for Judd. Well, you got one in police brutality. We could even have a demonstration in this story. Monash seemed resigned. What in TV terms would be an acceptable demonstration, he said. We can't have a peace march. We know that. The only acceptable demonstration in television land is against stamping on dogs. 
proof set. I got it, Monet said suddenly. Who says we've got to say what kind of demonstration? What if we never say what the demonstration was all about? What if we just let the audience fill it in with their own minds? Prue considered that. What about a love-in, he countered. I'm very interested in kids. I'm executive director of Community Action for Fact and Freedom, and we helped negotiate peace on the Sunset Strip when the kids rioted up there. Monash shook his head. The problem with a love-in is that it's not mobile enough in camera terms. Look, we don't have to say the Century Plaza, but that's what it's all about. Okay, Frug said. And we've got to make the situation with the police chief more venal. Someone should have his hand in the till. We need a crime, because I don't think the demonstration will fill out much in terms of plot. You get a crime, you get some pressures between Judd and the principals, and the crime works in the middle land of TV. Monash ran his fingers around the neck of his turtleneck sweater. We might even have Judd lose this one. Has he lost one yet, Frug said. Monash shook his head. No, but I think the time has come. We can't have every case turn on. Yes, Mrs. Mazursky, but is this the prescription for your glasses? <laughs> Frug laughed. The name of the game today is race riots and police brutality, and we're sitting here doing stories on crooked cops. Don't fight it. There's one more thing. You got any good stories over from your Sam Benedict days that we could steal? We're hurting. Sure, no problem. You got any, we'll disguise them. Change a him to a her, a gun to an knife, you know. But we really are hard up for stories.